Want to cut cooling bills without cutting comfort? Lower utility costs and enjoy cool and consistent comfort with a highly efficient air conditioner from Luxair. With Luxair's consumer rebate program, educators, nurses, first responders, military personnel, and veterans can enjoy exclusive rebates on qualifying purchases of Luxair equipment. To learn more, call G-Team Mechanical at 765-376-3042 or visit gteamhvac.com. They'll recommend a system tailored to your home that provides comfort, energy savings, and lasting performance. This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee. We eagerly welcome you to the season opener. We'll get the 2022 season underway. The green flag flies, Michael Young, for turn number one. Side by side goes third baseline, and Joseph Newgarden will steal the win. Auto Award has swung around the outside of Renis VK on the out. The Mexican driver is on the throttle. Marcus Erickson flies under the twin checkers, and he has achieved racing immortality. He wins the 106th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Will Power's going to climb into the throttle. The lead, 1.1 seconds for Will Power. Twin checkers out, and he holds up Alexander Rossi. Into turn number 11, McLaughlin will look to the inside. Big better over. McLaughlin gets a great run down the front straightaway. What an unbelievable set of Crack race for the start finish line, but Scott Dixon will not be denied. David Malukas goes to the high side, side by side between turns one and two. He's going to sweep around the outside and make that pass. David Malukas streaks around Scott McLaughlin. It will be the second championship in the career of Will Power in a season in which he wrapped up but one win, a model of consistency. As 2022 comes close to a close, some NTT IndyCar highlights of the year. That's all courtesy of IndyCar Radio to get us ready for 2023. Tonight's show includes one of the six lead voices for IndyCar Radio, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network. Paul Page will be on coming up in about an hour, plus plenty of news. IndyCar has its docu-series. Thursday Night Thunder is back. More IndyCar drivers are going to be busy in January at Daytona. And to some extent, 2022 activity on the track was not quite done yet. Hello, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan, Josh Molinix is in our Indianapolis studios. The highlights, as mentioned, courtesy of IndyCar Radio. We're, by the way, not done yet in 2022 either. We've got one more show, final show of the year, coming up next week, next Tuesday night, 7 to 9. And we're going to take just one week off for the holiday break this year. So we won't be on the 27th, but we will be back on Tuesday night, January 3rd, same time, uh, 7 to 9 on the Tuesday night, the first Tuesday in January. Kurt, we are trackside today, and I, I will concede, especially if you can hear the buzzing of junior Formula race cars in the background, this segment is plausibly live. And I thought, you know what, in December... If we have the opportunity to have a little bit of ambient noise during the program, let's tape a segment and let's do it. We're at Sebring International Raceway. Can you hear the buzz? Yeah, but but you kind of misquoted yourself because we are not at Sebring. I'm up here in the <laughs> uh, in the very uh, chilly Indianapolis after having spent some time uh, in the sun last week uh, as we did that show little vacation time in January or in December trying to use up some dates. So I'm glad you're getting some sunshine, some vitamin D, but I, however, am not. 
Well, you do not get to complain considering where you've uh, spent a couple of uh, trips here in most recent days. And this is part of my, I'm getting better at this each year. Try to spend as much time and have a purpose for it. So no vacations. Um, People that help fund, no matter how small the funding is, race car programs don't get a lot of vacations. So I either need to work or need to be uh, at a site. And I know technically I don't need to be here for Jackson to test anymore, but maybe we'll disclose this later. I am starting up a side business at some point that I've done some reconnaissance on here uh, while we've been here. So we'll get into what's going on here at, at Sebring. It's uh, been just perfect weather. It's beautiful. Uh, high today of like 80. It was mid-high 70s yesterday. It's been awesome. And I'm now seeing if there are any boat shows or anything else in the months of uh, December, January, early February that can use my services. We'll get into that coming up. Oh, you know what I, I will say here? Um, you know, you ever watch the, the 12 Hours of Sebring and sure. wonder uh, how do they find their way around that track? Now, I, I know it wasn't a race weekend, uh, so you're always going to have some campers and so forth. But how dark it's looked in some sections of the track, so it gets dark very early. Uh, the further east you go, it gets dark early in, in Indiana as well, but it's pretty much dark by about 545 or so, and we couldn't get into the facility until after 530. So I, I try to run or walk sometimes as many tracks as I can get to, and I've never run this track before, and they're doing the full layout. This is the first time in a while formula cars have been on the full layout. They, they normally are on the little short course, with, you know, IndyCar does 52-second laps, and even a USF 2000 car is like a minute three or something. They're doing the full sports car layout. So this is like uh, just under a two-minute lap for the Indy Pro 2000 car. Um, so I, I did that, and part of it's lit, but when you get past turn seven, around to like turn 16, you got no idea where you're going. And I actually, I, I was on pavement, but I looked up at some point and noticed, oh, I've gone way off the track finding the line. So I had to turn a flashlight on to make sure over the big bumps and cracks, I didn't twist my ankle. And it is massively bumpy on that front stretch through turn 17 into turn one. I've looked at Jackson's onboards a little bit. He had been here before in a, a school car, a Lucas Oil Formula Car Series car. But he said, this is like five times as bumpy. I can't imagine what an Indy car would be like. And it, it's cool. They're hustling. I looked up the times. So the time these cars that he's in are doing are quicker than a, a GTD pro car. They're about the same speed as an LMP three car. So it's kind of getting around and it's pretty big commitment going, going into turn one. All right, let's get to news of the day. Um, and it is big news for, from last week. People have been asking, wondering how it's all going to come about. We've got our answer. IndyCar has a docu-series and even more so, Kurt, and you can give some details, we're not going to have to wait until, say, January of 2024 to get to see the product. Yeah, it's going to start much sooner than that. And, you know, one of the questions that people have been asking me is, is like, well, how does this help IndyCar? Because it's going to appear on a couple of uh, platforms uh, that, that most uh, of our listeners probably don't tune into, the CW and Vice TV, and those aren't, you know, ESPN or NBC or Fox or, you know, one of the, one of the big names, but it's, it's very much a play 
to attract a, a younger audience uh, as as you know Mark Miles and others have continued to say uh, this is not for the average IndyCar fan as they sit here today. This uh, six-part series, as you, it's called "100 Days to Indy," uh, will document uh, the actual build-up to the Indianapolis 500 and and the th- look at it from from a vantage point that is not those of us who are deeply immersed in the series, either as uh, competitors, as media, as you know. Uh, hard card holders, those of us who go to a, a lot of races, even though, even those that, uh, watch every race. I mean, it's going to, it's going to be a little more simplistic than that, but I think it'll be interesting. Uh, in fact, I was just, uh, putting together a roundtable discussion for tomorrow's IndyCar.com. Who are some of the people you would like them to focus on? Uh, if you're going to learn something about the sport, have some people with some personality. Uh, some interesting talkers. Uh, who would you like to see? And one of the first names that come to mind, uh, f- especially if we're appealing to a young audience, and I look at the young young audience uh, viewers in my household or in my family, they love Callum Eilat. He has he has great energy. He has great wit. He's a good looking young man. He's got that 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 uh, English accent, and and he's just. He's fun and lively, and I think those are the kind of people that that uh, that this production company, which, by the way, is not the uh, IndyCar or the Penske Entertainment production company doing this. I think there's a there's going to be outside influences, which will be really good to see how they look at our sport. Uh, but but it's uh, somebody like Callum Eilat, uh, a Michael Shank, who's who's built his race team from from a different uh, platform maybe than a Roger Penske has or a yep. Michael Andretti. Those guys are interesting to me. Oh, definitely. I think the Shank story is one that's going to be fascinating. And this is why the creative part is so important. And with this format, I, I can't even predict in what direction they're going to get, go in. I guess I can predict and guess Obviously, if, if it's based on the Indy 500 and 100 days to Indy, um, you're going to use that as the backdrop, and that's what maybe gets people interested. But there's not a whole lot goes on in those 100 days specifically preparing for the Indy 500. There are two test days at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. There's a lot of work at the shop and polishing the car, and there would be the, the marketing aspects. So I, I think this is going to be an avenue to include the buildup to the other races, even though only Texas is at all similar on an oval, it's still IndyCar racing. And I would think there would still be some part of showing off what St. Pete is and showing off what Long Beach is, but then more than anything else, it's just touching on that backdrop and then telling the interesting stories like what you mentioned and, and maybe like a Pato award and reminding people who Scott Dixon is and that this is Elio Castroneves, the series that he races in and he's still here full time, but it can, can just go in a lot of different directions and the creative people are critical. And as well as we think of the people like us that are here all the time and our friends at IMS productions who are awesome, it's probably good to get a fresh eye who wants to learn and could ask the proper questions because as you said 
the audience isn't necessarily us. I think we're going to watch, right? We're going to go out of our way to go find this, where it is, whether it's on the CW. And by, by the way, in Indianapolis, that's Wish TV Channel 8. So there is an Indianapolis affiliate. And I believe I heard they're in 75% of the markets on linear television. And there is going to be a streaming or an on-demand option. And, and you can fill me in on, on that, or that may be something we learn down the road. But I think there are going to be multiple ways to see it. But what you're really hoping to do is, yes, we want to satisfy the hardcores and give us more, but introduce the sport to some other people. Yeah, it's it's that's absolutely the the way to go. And, you know, it'll I think, you know, you talk about whether it's introducing St. Pete, Long Beach and and some of those races leading up to the Indianapolis 500. That's all well and good and shows diversity of the sport and some really cool camera angles and gets people jacked about some of those kind of elements to the sport visually. But I think it's it's largely setting the combatants. Who are these characters? How do they how do they mix with each other? You know, how does a Joseph Newgarden uh, become bus brothers with with Scott McLaughlin? How does, you know, the rivalries, um, you know, build up? And if you have an incident between two drivers, say, at St. Pete, how does that carry over? You know, some of the drama that goes behind uh, in that we don't see on a regular basis, but clearly there's some tension between some drivers at some point during the season, and they'll be hoping and looking for those kind of of moments. But uh, you know, all those things mixed in uh, should bring an interesting uh, v- a viewpoint to the sport. You, you kind of really wish that Alexander Rossi and Romain Grosjean were still teammates because you got sure. that all teed up for you. I mean, they can still go back to that, but you know, what what happened between them if they're not on the same team isn't really that big of a deal. And the word spoken, if they're not on the same team, is not that big of a deal. So I don't know that that still plays. But those are characters, too, that you can accentuate. And I think you take advantage of the drive to survive uh, Q rating, if you will, that Grosjean has and remind some casuals. And, and you know, I think they're probably going to show the fire scene again. Uh, and, and just remind people this is where he's at. You know, another name that has to be taken advantage of is Connor Daly. Connor's interesting. Connor's a really interesting guy. So I think you can do some fun things with him. Uh, Graham Rahal is going, if they, when they do sit downs and ask for your honest opinions on people, Graham Rahal is going to be a star, right? Because he's oh, going to yeah. tell you exactly what he thinks. Some other guys are, yeah, I, I don't see Joseph Newgarden throwing down on anyone when, when he does the sit down at the end of a session. Joseph is a Penske driver. He's going to be professional and he's going to choose his words caref- carefully. Um, Graham is going to tell you what he thinks. And I think that might be really good TV. So your point about Joseph in a sit down environment is is accurate. Joseph, as you know, as well as anybody, Joseph in the heat of the moment is very interesting. Up. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> yeah. very interesting as Joe as uh, Graham is, as Pato is and and Connor as well. So, you know, we've given them four names right there and of course, Elio is just plain good TV. Uh but and especially as it relates to the Indianapolis 500 and 
and being able to show Elio and his jubilation and so forth. But uh, I think that, you know, I would err on the side of younger, which gets you to Tapato, to, to which gets you to. Uh, what about the Lucas? And, yeah. and, and he's got reality uh, TV experience going through these. And the I great think, thing about taping it is they can go down a couple of different paths without deciding what they're going to do and just say, all right, who's interesting? Oh, I'm sorry, you didn't make the cut. Um, but that might be one to explore, too. Colton Herta's kind of has a rock star uh, look and feel, too. And and so yep. uh, I think he would be another person I would throw in that group. What I also will be interested in seeing how this works, because this is one of the, the frank questions that we had. How much access uh, are the teams going to? to be willing to allow, you know, are they, are they going to be okay with some dirt? Uh, I think there's a way that you're not really worried about a competitive edge being spilled, but that will be a concern as well. No one wants to give away anything, even though that race is already done that might help somebody for next year. But just the other part of it is nobody really wants to be seen in a bad light. So will all the teams be fully clear of letting dirty laundry be out there? And some things that they might not want to. And, and also the other part is we know when, what happens in reality television. And some of the drivers have complained about this in Formula One about Drive to Survive is they take sound bites and situations totally out of context. That's not great if you're the, the focus, but it does make for better television. And it's made that show better. So what's our goal in that? Do we want a true documentary that's 100% accurate? Or you do want something that's going to get attention. That means in entertainment, you probably have to allow the truth to be spread uh, and stretched a little bit. And I don't know how everybody's going to feel about that. Well, I think there are a couple teams that come to mind that might be a little more uh, lenient in that respect. But, you know, there isn't such the biting comments in this sport that we see in Formula One. There, you know, some when you take when you take sound bites in Formula One, and I've often, you know, having covered that sport pretty extensively at my time at the Star, you you have, you have, uh, you go back and listen to the quote or read the quote sheet, and you're like, holy cow, what did he just say? I mean, so you kind of have to listen to it, and so it really is a soundbite atmosphere, where IndyCar's kind of not, doesn't really provide that many biting comments, so I think we're we're probably inclined to see less venom uh, but there will be some, and the teams are just going to have to kind of suck it up. I, I, I actually could see Graham being portrayed as, as one who stirs it up because he's going to have some comments that are good sound bites. You just know he does. Yeah. Uh, I saw, I think, uh, Adam Stern at Sports Business Journal wrote this that NBC had sort of a right of first refusal. And and they declined. I'm looking for the exact quote of how. Yeah, here it is. NBC Sports had first dibs, but the network passed in part because it liked the idea of another media company promoting the property. I would say, and I get this. People say, well, you you work for NBC. You're going to follow the company line. But I wouldn't have brought this. I 100% agree with that. While it would have been great if it's on Peacock or NBC, in my opinion, you're reaching the same audience. This needs to go somewhere else. There's a reason why the NFL is partnered with everyone. One, because they can, and they can get everybody's money. But 
every network promotes the NFL. And there's a reason why there's an advantage to being on one. Um, but if you're big enough, you'd like to have multiple people doing that work. And this is, I think, an example of that, but more so just reach a different audience. I- I'm not sure that being on Peacock or even on another traditional sports television outlet would have done you uh, as much good as being somewhere else. Agreed. And, and someone else kind of investing some money is good for the sanctioning body. Uh, it's good for, it's just good to, to bring in their people too. Now, and when I say people, it's their, you know, it's the partners of the CW and vice TV. It's, it's people they're connected to, uh, who might see this otherwise. I mean, the people that are connected to NBC sports have seen you know, what, what that product looks like. So it's just good to bring more people and entities into the equation and money for that matter. I'm not smart enough to say what, and I don't know the landscape enough to know what's the best outlet. You know, I think we all first, when we were thinking about this, hoping for an Amazon prime or a Netflix, but, but I do know this, there have been other docu-series for sports that have been on one of those platforms that none of us are familiar with. So it's not a home run. Uh, and hopefully there's not another pandemic that, that gives everyone, you know, the, the ability to search and finish the internet and start looking for new things to watch. So I don't know whether this is as good. I think the argument can be made that, boy, there's so much competition on Netflix. What, what you really need is the outlet to feel it's worthy of promotion and to get behind it. You're one of hundreds of properties on Netflix and Amazon Prime or, you know, and there are many, many others out there that it's pretty easy to get lost in the shuffle. So it's possible that this is just as good, potentially better, depending on what resources they use. If they're running promos on these television channels that are on 75 percent of markets in the country, that's added exposure, even if people don't invest the time in sitting down to watch this series. So there are a lot of possibilities there. Uh, Is it going to be the game breaker that drive to survive was no, I doubt it, but, and I think this is a step in the right get to learn more about the personalities. And I suspect even those of us that have been around all these people for a while are going to learn some things we did not know. So I I can't wait to see that. Uh, we, We don't really have like a first air date yet. Correct. That's correct. You know, we got to hit, got to hit singles and doubles. Uh, I don't think yep. there's, as, uh, as Mark Miles has said repeatedly, there's no, there's no magic button here. There's no magic button to push. Uh, you, you do, uh, consistently good work in different platforms and avenues, uh, whether that's marketing or, or a series like this. And, uh, you hope it brings other people to the table and, and that's all you can hope for. So we're going to break here and come back and get into some of the other things, including some more marketing news for IndyCar. We'll get into Thursday night thunder coming back and plenty more on the way. Trackside at 93.5, the fan. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, 
and everything in between. Hi, this is Will Power, and you're listening to Trackside. Thank you for staying with us as Trackside continues, and we've, we've moved inside. So we go from outside ambient noise to what, probably a little bit of an echo, Kurt, but the Wi-Fi signal was not good in, in the parking lot. Um, where there's Wi-Fi out back, the car noises are too loud. So those at the Seven Sebring Hotel Bar that uh, are visiting, and, and it's, it's a light crowd here at this time of the day, uh, are going to get to enjoy part of the program. So let's continue the conversation. And, and the marketing topic is, uh, is big in the IndyCar world, especially if you're on social media. Did you see David Molcher Lopez's story from a few days ago on motorsport.com? More I, of a column. I, I miss David's. <laughs> you didn't see that? Let me, let, let's do a reading with Kevin segment and read the opening, uh, opening paragraph. And then that'll, that'll go along with so, some news of, I wouldn't say the day of the week. Uh, and I'll, I'll just touch on that first. Adam Stern, who we've already mentioned, who breaks a lot of, a lot of news in motorsport. He tweeted maybe last week that IndyCar plans significantly to increase its marketing budget for next year um, and says they will be more aggressive in the face of rising competition and had some quotes on that and uh, so forth. And, and we talked about that and, and you know, I kind of answered uh, some questions on that front that, that I know not everyone agrees with. And here's the great thing there. I don't know that there is a right or wrong answer. One of Part of my thinking on this is, and I don't know how to explain this best, um, I tend to be a little more positive, uh, a little more glass half full in a lot of things. And I also think because I've worked in association as a partner with broadcast networks, with uh, sports, and I've worked for teams, you, you hear things and you'll kind of learn their side of things. You know, that it's, it's not, not so simple just to say, be better. Remember, the other team is trying to win as well. So it's not as easy as it seems. And, and the other thing that I was kind of pushing back on is, okay, I know we'd like to market more. One, you know, how do you pay for it? And if, if you're spending money on marketing, no matter what it is, you want to know that you're going to make that money back. And if you don't have a plan that, that leads you to believe that you're at least going to find some value. It may be tangible. It may be intangible. But until you have a plan that is going to get you some of that back, then you're kind of wasting your money on marketing. And I think my pushback a little bit was because I don't, I don't disagree. I'd love to see more marketing too, but I want to know how to spend that money. And we've both been around for a little while, and this is not new in motorsport. We've heard this forever, and I'm going to guess they were hearing it in the 60s as well when marketing really started coming into plan. Oh, we have to market more. Okay, great. Tell me how to market. Don't just say spend money. Tell me how to do it. And, and I know there's some ideas out there, but generally what I seem to hear from, uh, from drivers too is, well, you just need to spend money. Give us a little more on that. So with that, here is the beginning of David Malsher Lopez's uh, article, because I think some others kind of feel the same way. David writes, during this offseason, something calling itself the IndyCar Drivers Association sent a letter to five very senior members of Penske Entertainment asking for IndyCar to step up its marketing. It was, by most accounts, an ill-conceived and ill-constructive missive from a loose band of drivers and apparently went down like a cup of cold vomit with those at the top. 
end quote. And we won't get into that um, comparison there. That's one that I'm going to give David credit for. I've not thought of that. And I probably will try not to use that comparison again. I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, But here's what I kind of take from that, that I, I wonder what specific ideas were presented. I would think if if you go to them and say, here are some things, it's all about the presentation. It's how you send it to them. Here's what I'd like to see us do. And we, by the way, are willing to invest some of our time to help along with that. But if it's just simply, you all need to step up and spend more money, um, then yeah, that may not be received super duper well. So I just kind of present that as, as part of the discussion on that. But it, it's also nice to hear that uh, IndyCar is paying attention to what people are saying and they, they understand this. Now, the key is trying to figure out how to do it because I will admit that I'm not smart enough to know exactly how to do it. There's some little things that you can do here and there, but just saying market isn't, isn't quite enough to be able to get it going. Well, you know, we've done a lot of different things and I think ultimately the, the answer, if there is an answer is just to keep, to keep, you know, yourself in the public eye. And, and there are, you know, there's just so many ways that people consume things. You know, it used to be you took it out an ad in the daily newspaper in the town you were going to or soon to be going to. And that was it. Throw up some billboards, throw up some, some print advertising, maybe appear on the ABC or CBS or NBC news channels. And that was it. And now, you know, now it's just so diverse and, and, uh, you know, you're looking for different audiences and different demographics and so forth. And it's just, it isn't that you don't know how to do it. It's just, you could debate for hours, which platform, which path is the best way to do it. And you really kind of need a huge budget, uh, to, to cover all those bases. Ultimately, the best way to market is just to have things happen. You know, it's almost like, you know, dumb luck that something goofy will happen in your sport, either competitively or I say goofy, but maybe more unusual. And, and it, it gains social media traction and it, it, uh, it builds interest because of something that happened either competitively or just out of the norm and, and get people talking about your sport, but just appearing in, in print publications or on, on, uh, television or just in people's Facebook pages or, or their, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not as defined as, as it used to be. And therefore a, a very difficult thing to pin down. I feel confident in this, that all of the people are spending an awful lot of time trying to get creative and come up with those ideas. And sometimes uh, it's good to have a fresh perspective in, and they are going to have that at some point. Someone else will get a chance to kind of lead that charge, team with Penske Entertainment, and we'll see where they go. Uh, You know, the other thing I I thought of uh, is, and, and part of my opinion on this of being just slightly annoyed with how much negativity I seem to be seeing on, on social media is, and, and by the way, I get it. And here's, here's why I get it. And what, where I think maybe it comes from, um, you see a lot of negativity in every sport. So if, if you're a Colts fan and, and you follow the, the people that are Colts fans in the media, you see an awful lot of negativity there. 
uh, no matter what sport it is. And, and in other sports, it seems that the negativity is normally about competition. You know, it's basically our team is terrible, fire everybody. Our quarterback is terrible. We need a new one. And that has been going on way before social media days. The nickname of the Brooklyn Dodgers that eventually became World Series champions in the 50s was Dem Bums because the Brooklyn fans were were often so critical of the team and and they did struggle before that. So in motorsport, a lot of fans don't necessarily have a favorite driver or team to all get together with and pile on. Yeah, there's you know a part of uh, culture that does just kind of enjoy sitting on the couch and lobbing grenades and you know understanding that we can do it a little bit better. So what the common denominator is is the sport itself, the series, the sanctioning body. So maybe that's part of it is that we don't have a team to say our team is terrible they're in last place let's fire everybody um let's kind of look at the big picture and just say the whole sport in general is not it so those are just some random thoughts that may or may not be accurate um and while i say all of this I'm not unfollowing people or muting them because they they don't tote the company line. We don't have to all go along with everything is wonderful. It's okay. But, you know, at some points I just feel like I I wanted to hear a different opinion because everyone makes it sound like the sport is dying. And I don't think it is. I think we're in a better position than we were a few years ago by a little bit and have a chance to continue to move forward. So I just wanted to offer a different opinion. You can find plenty of places out there for negativity, and and we'll try to point out some things that we disagree with at times as well, but uh, that's that. All right, so I looked at Twitter, and and one of the conversations, and and getting into some things that that people disagree about how big of a deal this is, is uh, the plan moving forward for engines. And Brian at 500 Indy 1911 posted something and tagged me on it about a little poll moving forward. He basically said uh, that the tweet poll was you could have only one. And I thought this was a good debate. If you could have only one, would you want a new chassis, a thousand horsepower, 2.4 liter hybrid, a third OEM or 40 cars for 33 spots? So let's think about that there. New chassis, thousand horsepower, third engine manufacturer or 40 cars for 33 for the Indy 500. And, and one of my answers was, you know, if you get one of them, I think it's going to lead to some others with a thousand horsepower. I think I responded if that included like a screaming type engine um, that, that we had in the, in the cart days, I might be all for that because that's something that really, I think the sound is important. I think the sound is maybe just as important as the actual speed and the horsepower because I can't see horsepower and it's difficult for me to tell the difference in five miles per hour or whatever, but I can't hear the difference in that. If you had a 30 OEM, you probably have a better chance at 40 cars for 33 spots. Um, and I'd, I'd love to see a new chassis if it made business sense. I guess I'm less about, you know, a lot of extra cars in Indy. I don't, I think qualifying is certainly interesting and it certainly, uh, spurs a lot of us. But if you, you know, and I, I like the idea of bumping, no question about it. I think that's one of the fabrics of the history of this sport. 
but I don't need 40 cars. Uh, I would rather have the third engine manufacturer because I think that supports the other things as you described. I mean, it would, mm-hmm. it builds your economic base. It, it, it brings in more people to the discussion. And, and I think you'll hear that from me a lot on a lot of subjects. And we just talked about it with regard to the television exposure or the, 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 the broadcast exposure, whether that comes in linear television or, or, uh, or streaming. I just think more people in the, in the game is good for the overall health of a business. Uh, more, more diverse fans, more diverse manufacturers, more diverse sponsors, uh, owners go on down the line. And, and that's why I think international drivers, uh, bring a really great element to the sport. It just brings more and different perspectives and, and, and unique, uh, interest on a lot of fronts. So I'll take, I'll take the, uh, third engine manufacturer among that list. I think if you had to pick, I do think that's it because that gives you a better chance of having more cars for the Indy 500. Um, a new chassis is cool for us and especially for, you know, the off season leading into that season and the first season. But I don't know that that really grows the sport. I don't know how much different it's going to look to the common fan and, you know, the extra three and a half, four million people that are watching the Indy 500. So, yeah, I think that's the answer there. Uh, from Adrew D on Twitter, he says, uh, Brian and I agree on this, but adding another choice of video game would have made this even more interesting for growth opportunity. New fans, a video game would be the biggest deal of all the options. John Bull at J.E. Bull Jr. says, Kevin said it right on the show. Don't care what the engine is in there. I don't want electric, John says. Would like a third supplier. If we want car counts around 27, 28, we need three suppliers. Let's look at a new car design. You know, I know not everybody agreed with my – when I said about the engine, it wasn't a big deal to me. That's what I meant, to me. And I don't think it's a huge deal to the casual fan uh, and, and when I say, you know, the extras watching the Indy 500, I think it probably matters more to those that are watching, say, a race at Mid-Ohio on the USA Network in the summertime. It's, it's probably a much higher percentage there. But, you know, having the new engine, I, I, I don't know how that really changes the game for anything. You do have to keep moving forward. You have to keep your hardcores interested. But... At some point, the expense comes into that. And, you know, I don't know that we know exactly all the details of all of this. Um, supply chain issues, I'm sure, are a part of it. Uh, input from engine manufacturers are a part of it and, and much more involved. But I don't find this as big of a deal as some others. I'm looking for the other tweet that somebody said that pointed out something as well when I mentioned about the weight. And, and, and they're right that um, – so the hybrid component is still going to add some weight to the car of this current 2.2 liter. So that is going to be a factor uh, that's involved. But I think it's also still going to add more horsepower, right? So it's, yeah. it's going to help make up the difference. So but by – they're not saving weight by not – maybe it's a little bit – by staying at the 2.2. It's really the hybrid issue that would add more weight. Um, so th- that is correct on, on that front. But as they say, it is what it is. And I still think there, um, I think there's still an opportunity to move forward in this, in this path 
And we'll see what they come up with that, you know, maybe in a year or two will be more relevant to the manufacturers and maybe they can encourage a third to come in. What else did we have? Oh, it was uh, actually Axie Motorsport 140 that pointed that out uh, about the weight issue. So I think they are correct on that. And I believe we are out of time in this segment. So I've still got several more things that I want to get to coming up in the next hour. We'll keep checking out what we have missed throughout the day and a conversation with the legendary Paul Page. His book is back in print. We'll get the tales on that and some good stories as well, all coming up. Trackside 93.5-1075, The Fan. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Hi, this is Pato Award, and you're listening to Trackside. Okay, before we get into Hour 2, let's get into some news and notes. Uh, New branding for what was Aero McLaren SP and has had several nomenclatures over the years from Sam Schmidt Motorsports. Davey Hamilton was a partner for a little while. Then Rick Peterson came on board. Uh, So now it's no longer Aero McLaren SP, the S for Schmidt, the P for Peterson. It's now simply Aero McLaren. Uh, So nothing has changed as far as the ownership structure. the company and the, the team is still, I think it's 25% owned by Sam Schmidt and Rick Peterson. They retain their interest, are still involved, uh, but a branding effort. And if I'm Rick and Sam, I would basically be thinking, that's fine. As long as the business is still the same, just having the initial doesn't do a ton for us. Uh, so from a branding standpoint, this is a little bit simpler. Arrow and McLaren are both brands, and it makes it easier to not have to explain what the S and the P come for. So there you go. There's that. Racer.com reported that Joseph Newgarden is going to have a third engineer in three years. So when Gavin Ward left uh, at the end of last season, they hired Eric Likely to replace him. And according to Racer... Uh, Luke Mason, who had worked with Carlin before previously, is moving on board. I don't think this has been confirmed from the team yet. Likely is still staying on, but doing a different role. And uh, Luke Mason will be New Garden's lead engineer for next season. I, I mentioned, uh, I think I touched on all the IndyCar drivers that are going to be involved in the Rolex 24, and I think we've got maybe still some more coming. I don't know that we mentioned Renus VK is going to be back, so that's good news. And what's also interesting of this is that, last I heard, they have 70 teams wanting to enter. 70! And they're going to cap it at 61. I thought this might come out by today. Should come out any time. Teams are essentially, kind of like Le Mans, going to be notified if they're invited or not. So, about 
10 are going to be turned away. So 61 is the plan for the uh, the Rolex 24 coming up next month. And a cool announcement I saw come down the pike today. Uh, as some of you know, my son Jackson raced in the Lucas Oil Formula Car Series, won a scholarship in their shootout that they're doing again in January. And the scholarship for the season series has been around seventy dollars or $75,000, which is great. It helps, but it's what? less than a fourth. It's about a fifth of the budget for USF 2000. So they announced today with Lucas Oil, the Lucas Oil Formula Car Champ is going to get a quarter of a million dollars to take to either USF 2000 or F4 or TCR, a sports car series that the Brian Herta team runs in. So for F4, that's pretty much most of the budget. So really cool news for the, the series that, that R.C. Enerson and his dad, Neil, run. And then along with that, I sent Neil a text today to congratulate him. And he said, hey, we're running in Sebring the next two days. I need a driver, coach. So I'm leaving my driver here in Jackson. We'll work a couple of days at, at that school. Coming up in the next hour, the great Paul Page joins the program. Stay with us. Trackside 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Hi, this is Mark Erickson, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Back for the second hour of Trackside tonight on this December evening. We've got a little time to talk because it's December. Not a lot of races happening uh, you know, on our schedule this particular weekend, so a chance to really kind of delve into a subject. And i, I got to say, I'm remiss in... And saying I have a regret that uh, Paul Page had a book out that came out last May, not this 22 May, but last year. And we had scheduled a time to kind of dive into that book. Hello, I'm Paul Page, and it's race day in Indianapolis. We did, we had some time to, to dive into that book. And then uh, breaking news happened on that particular day, and we, we scrapped the, the interview time and figured we'd get back to it. Well, now that book is in its second printing because Paul's a very popular figure, and the book is, is uh, a good read. So we're into a time where we get chat about that book. So Paul joins us. We don't really need a big introduction for this audience. Uh, but Paul, I, I, I guess I want to start with obviously 27 Indianapolis 500s, I think is the, maybe the count. It may be higher than that, but the, but the point of, I guess, of the first question is you spent so much time in broadcasting, not a, and you're more of a skilled writer than I think people realize, but how is it putting together a book how do you even begin to start the the formation of a book? And I guess from a general sense, how do you think it turned out? Well, um, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to come on. Um, it was like a five to seven year project. Um, I started by just putting together a bunch of anecdotes that I had, good things that I'd experienced and a little bit broader in terms of my, my life, uh, stuff other than racing. 
And I was trying to figure out how to put that all together. And then I realized, from my point of view, there are very few good histories of the Indy 500 after uh, Al Blemker's 500 Miles to Go, which carried you up to 1959. So I thought, well, I could do that because I went to my first race in 1960, and I could carry the history onward and mix in the anecdotes. So once I had that kind of organized, it probably took an actual year in a writing with my co-author, uh, John Elrod. So uh, it was it was still pretty intense over that time to get it done, but I'm sure glad we got it done. I'm, I think any discussion about the book has to start with the title. Uh, I thought while some might have, if you were comparing it to other books, the title is a bit long, but it's perfect. Mm -hmm. It's perfect for Paul Page. Talk about why, how you came up with that title. Oh, that was the only big argument that I had with my co-author, John. Um, he offered up a bunch and I didn't like his. And then I offered a bunch and he didn't like mine. And so finally uh, we, we settled on, on this on this title and when i look back on it some of the titles that we had otherwise were also pretty good but you know you, we didn't argue over a thing in the book <laughs> the uh, title became a bit of controversy but we liked the way the title came out we thought it it said that's what i would always say on the air so there you are is it and maybe this is a little too deep but I, I think it's it's reflective of what I know about trying to come up with the, par the perfect words. Is it almost like like a tombstone? Like you're trying to get the get the exact perfect thing to sum up what this life is about. Not necessarily in this case your life, but this book's life, and you're trying to just get it perfect. And the stress of that is immense. Well, uh, you know, being a writer yourself, you, you you write a couple of paragraphs and and you let them sit for a day, and then you go back and read them and realize that they were terrible, and you rewrite them, and uh, that process may may repeat for a couple of days. But uh, getting it right is pretty tedious process, and uh, uh, that I'm used to writing short things like the opening of the Indy 500 kind of stuff, three, four minutes or three or four minute features. So, yeah, this was entirely different. How many words does this, I didn't check to see how many words are in this book, but oh, you had to people, that. <laughs> because, well, is it because people don't realize that, uh, you know, in a normal newspaper story is probably five to 700 words. Uh, that's, that's a lot for a writer and, you know, a thousand words or fifteen hundred words for a magazine piece is a lot for the reader, but you're talking five to ten thousand words in a book. It's a long process. Yeah, and I, um, um, it's it's somewhere I don't really know. I could look it up, <laughs> but I don't know. It's something in the neighborhood of eighty-two thousand words. Yeah, uh, so it that that takes a bit. It takes a bit. Yeah, yeah. It's uh. It's a it's a long process. You had a chance to tell a lot of stories over the years mm -hmm. and, you know, and and you've done obviously more storytelling in a public sense than I have. But I, you have certain stories that a lot of people have heard over the years. And I would say, would you say, I guess, that you were able to tell some stories that maybe you hadn't told very often, or if at all, are there very many of those from your standpoint that you hadn't had a chance to tell? Yeah, uh, the biggest one 
is about Sid Collins, who, you know, was my mentor and one of my best friends. Um, we're talking about the uh, Sack McDonald crash in 64. And uh, the general belief was that Sid ad lived that. And um, hold on. Hmm. I'm this sorry. Modern technology uh, gets yeah, cell phone it, it calls. Gets me. Um, that Sid ad libbed that eulogy that he gave for Eddie Sachs and Dave McDonald. And that's not exactly true. Um, if you remember, the track was shut down over two hours after the accident. And of course, being the, the broadcaster, the only broadcasters at that time, um, we were told immediately what was going on. But you can't do anything until the PA announces it and family and everything are, are notified. So Sid knew it for uh, at least an hour and a half, if not longer. And to Sid's, Sid, in his earlier years, had in-race fatalities, but he didn't think he had discharged them well. Uh, kind of almost a throw-off. We had to report that the accident in turn three uh, took the life of so-and-so and nothing else. So he started writing down quotes, poetry, uh, any prose he could find, and had them in an envelope labeled fatalities. And I have that envelope now. He uh, then took that hour and a half and put that all together in his head, only sketched a few notes, but when he delivered it, I mean, it was dead on perfect. It doesn't take anything away from him at all that he had that prep time. It speaks to his incredible skill as a as a broadcaster and an orator. I mean, the most beautiful thing. I, I would like to have one tenth of that when I finally kick. But uh, I think that's that's one of the big surprises. And I tell that story pretty much the same way I just did. Yeah, your uh, your your discussion. The one thing I and I had not heard this part of the story. You referenced it the other day on social media, uh, just about the end of the '92 race and how, from your broadcast position <laughs> at Indianapolis, you couldn't you couldn't exactly see the Indy 500's finish yeah. line without really making some adjustments from the broadcast booth. Talk about that. That's that's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, our broadcast booth at that time, 92, was uh, on top of the roof on the main grandstands, uh, kind of directly across from the start-finish line. But because that's a cantilevered structure, we couldn't be out on the edge, and they, they had to move our booth back maybe 20 or 30 feet from the edge so that everything would bear the weight properly. And so you get in it, and it was fine while we were just watching because you could see the track. It was down there, and maybe uh, as much as a third you couldn't see, but that didn't matter while we were watching the practice. But then you put all the TV monitors, and I'm talking to big CRTs on, on race day, and you, you can't see anything at all out that window. So here comes uh, Al Unzer and Scott Goodyear, and they are beating at each other. And I realize as they're entering the third turn about on the on the last lap, my director had a habit, Don Olmeyer, of shooting the finish of a race head on from the first turn. And the reason he did that is it foreshortened the look of what you were what the television was looking at. And I thought, oh my God, he's gonna do that. 
And so I started pushing on the monitor. I kind of climbed up over on top of it and put my head up against the glass. But I, I finally was in position when they crossed the line. I had no idea. I had no idea whatsoever. And I didn't have any idea. I looked at Bobby. He didn't have an idea. He was watching his monitor. And then I looked down at the scoring monitor and I realized what the, that gave me the interval in the finishing position. So that was where I got the data from. And if you listen to that, that broadcast on ABC, you'll, you'll hear, and he's done it. And then there's a pause. It seemed like two or three hours, but it's only a couple of seconds. And then I'd say Allinger Jr. has won the Indy 500. So. <laughs> because and, you, and Bobby still thinks that or still thought that that was a miracle. You know, how, how do we do that? We don't know, Bobby. <laughs> uh, interesting stuff. I, I, I would uh, remind the audience that we're listening to Paul Page. But honestly, your voice is so familiar that that introduction and that reminder is is not really even necessary. Uh, Thank you. Y- you've you've had such such great moments, and those moments uh, play out one way to the to the viewer or the the listener. Where is a couple of the other moments where the moment didn't just happen as as maybe as cleanly or as uh, as straightforward as as the viewer consumed it well if you remember television at the speedway is like 38 cameras yeah very complex and the reality is that stuff is is pretty sensitive and so you you seldom would have all your cameras available to you (laughs) this actually comes from the very first brickyard 400 i was doing the pre-race and the power failed because the Speedway had not anticipated the air conditioning load that would happen on the 4th of July. And it took down the power in the north end. And we had a generator, but it wasn't started yet. So from my perch, I was I was up in the paddock penthouse. I could see all kinds of people running around the compound trying to get the generator started. And this was like with five minutes to go on the air. So we're counting down. If you, if you are powered and connected, you, it's, you have to reboot the whole chain from the furthest camera out, but you have one emergency camera and that happened to be the one that was on me. So I'm sitting there and it's fine. Hello. You know, the inaugural Brickyard 400 and doing my thing, but it's now into total ad lib because I'm waiting for the rest of the cameras to come up online. And my producer was saying, in my uh, in my IFB, my headset says, we have two cameras. We have two cameras, you know, and then he'd do a wide shot of that other camera. And then, now, now we got three. So <laughs> during that, about the first 10 minutes of that, the whole system is coming back online. And, and I'm just standing up there just trying to come up with something to talk about because that's supposed to be a bunch of interviews and everything. We finally got the interviews, too, but it was it was a moment. Yeah, it's uh it's it's a moment and and you could spend a whole book almost talking about just oh, yeah. stories with with those kind of things, uh stories with Bobby Unser as your <laughs> sidekick. Um you know, you forget I mean people we've lost so much real history just in the last, you know, last couple year of years with the Unsers, uh with Bob Jenkins, with Robin, Robin but yeah. such such great characters. Um you had a front row seat for Bobby Unser and and uh it was you know, his time as a broadcaster might have been more enjoyable to those of 
of us in the public than when he actually drove because we we actually got to see his personality on on display on a regular basis um what a moment those those times must have been yeah and if you did you realized how funny he really could be sometimes i think he was funny and didn't know it himself and then there's right. of course that period starting in uh 89 uh 88 when um Sam Posey was in the booth as well. And so Sam would say A, and Bobby would immediately chime in, well, that's not exactly right, Sam. And then he'd start talking and explaining the thing. And finally, essentially, for the most part, would work his right way around to saying exactly what Sam did. <laughs> but now Bobby had said it, therefore it is accurate. And that was those were some interesting days, to say the least. Do you Jack have... Root, in fact, one one year brought me a, a striped umpire's referee shirt to wear when I was in the booth with those two. Perfect, perfect. Do you have uh, and people who who write or or create content will understand the the essence of this question? But it's difficult for those of us who have created content to appreciate what we've done uh, at the time we did it, or to to appreciate what we've done, even looking back on it. I looked at some newspaper clippings today and I cringed a few times, but is there, is there one of those races, the race call, whether it was a great finish or just a traditional finish uh, that you're most proud of? Yeah. Um, again, little Al's involved. He's racing Emerson Fittipaldi for the win. Um, Fittipaldi is leading. And we had been talking about this pair racing one another for maybe 20 laps or so, and we're in the final 10 laps of the race. And so one thing I do say is that it is almost mathematical that if you're leading at the 190th lap, you will not be at the 200th lap. And these guys are at it. And so I decided this doesn't need any description from me. Video is the primary media of television anyway, so I just shut up. And I might say, throw something in, you know, um, there's five miles to go and then shut up again. And so when they got into turn three and they had that crash and Emerson went on to win and little Al caught the wall, now I had something, a story I could really jump on and make something out of. I was I was very proud of that year. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a good call or, and sometimes lack thereof. Uh, that was perfect. Something that just occurred to me of all the things you've done. Did you ever do a victory lane? No, no, I never did. That's interesting. Um, at the speedway that, you know, it, it started where it was Lou Palmer for the longest time. And uh, then when I moved to television, that's, it was Jack Root the whole time. And, uh, I haven't actually been out of the booth much at all. In fact, uh, in 98, I wasn't on the broadcast. And so I had a chance to be a spectator, went to our regular family seats. Oh, man, it brought me back to 1960. I mean, it was so exciting and, and everything, but I hadn't seen it from that point of view for the longest time. So, yeah, but no other really. Uh, I was I was kind of stuck in the booth. That's not proper because I love doing the broadcast. And I, and I don't remember how you got your first credential. You got your first credential, I believe, <laughs> in 65. How did that happen? Well, I was I was working at uh, a local radio station at the time, uh, WIFE, and it was um, a 
bronze card. It wasn't even a badge. It was a temporary <laughs> card. And so, you know, and I'm, I'm in hog heaven. I, I can actually now get in to at least the garage area. That didn't get me in the pits, but it got me in the garage area. And that was super. And in fact, one day we had the station head, meaning the news director, Bill Donella, had a pace car from that year, beautiful convertible. And so he said, you can drive that to the speedway because it had a, a parking pass. And that time, Media Park just south of the old garage area. So I pull up and I get my space and I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm the guy, you know, I'm now it's perfect. I go in and I do some interviews. I got a great picture out of that era of uh, Jimmy Clark and I talking in the garage area. And I come back and get in the car and realize that somebody stole the the, uh, the automotive pass. So oh, I sheepishly drove it back. And I don't think Bill thought I should ever go out there again. So, <laughs> so Mario Andretti writes the forward in this book. Uh <laughs> I assume that was a request you made to Mario, but how do you possibly come up with, I mean, there's been so many great friends you've had in the sport. How did you do, end up with, with Mario? Um, that's a great question because there's some other tributes in there from like um, Roger Penske, Nigel Mansell, a bunch of them that were friends that I dealt with. But I, th- I thought, Mario probably knew me better since we we kind of paralleled from his first year in 69. And I asked him if he would do it. And he said, well, remind me of a few things. So I did. And then it it comes back and it uh, starts out with the line, Paul Page is not a rat. And the, the publisher said, no, you can't. We can't use that line. It was a perfect line. I mean, it was an attention getter. <coughs> and... What it, what it was leading to is later in, in, in the material that he wrote, he, he was talking about, uh, my being trustworthy, that a team could tell me what they think they're doing in a race, you know, new piece or whatever, but I couldn't talk about it unless it actually worked. So, uh, he was talking a lot about that and I didn't expect that. And that I get, I get chills even now thinking that Mario would do that for me. Yeah. It's, uh, the chill, the similar chill that I get is when I call him and he answers, hi, Kurt, which yeah. means he has my number. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's one of those things. Uh, in, in just in terms of maybe your, your history and, and your love as a, as a fan, uh, if, if one guy, and you kind of reference this a little bit, but if you had somebody to past or present to, uh, to speak at your funeral, uh, which driver or, or or racing personality? Which who, who would that be? I mean, I've, well, I've kind of thought about it you know, only from the standpoint you met, kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier, and then Mario writing a forward. Who is your maybe your biggest fan? Who are your biggest fan of? Um, that's first of all an interesting question. I've not contemplated that possibility just yet, but well, I <laughs> know I'm I'm just making fun. Um, geez, that's tough. Um. Well, certainly Mario, uh, certainly Roger would, would be considered yeah. because our times again, pretty much parallel. He's a little earlier than I was at the speedway. Um, who was your hero as a, as a driver? You're, you're, you're a fan in 1960. Who were you, who were you for? Eddie Sachs. Eddie Sachs. Yeah. Eddie Sachs, a hundred percent. And I, I, in the book, I have a nice story about writing him a letter that's uh, 
I, I think folks would enjoy. And, and, you know, we're talking about the book. Yeah, it's a history. The history is is the frame that we built a tale on. But there are also a lot of just personal things, uh, like when I was in a helicopter crash in 1977. Yeah. And things that I have done outside of racing, like I had uh, an enormous connection with the U.S. Navy and the naval aviation part. And I was taking drivers out on aircraft carriers. And, you know, that was that was a whole side deal for us. And then I uh, I did have uh, some involvement with both the FBI and the Indiana State Police SWAT teams uh, because I had a certain training that I could help them on some of their field exercises. And that job was the bad guy. So you know, that's fun having an entire SWAT team chasing you around at Camp Atterbury. So, you know, it's, it, I'm trying to also tell you other things about myself to maybe maybe you walk away and you have a better idea of who I am. And you were a broadcaster with your wife, which is an interesting dynamic Ooh. in itself. <laughs> I mean, that's that's not something. In, in fact, I was just reading about uh, an ESPN couple that's based here in Indianapolis who have that relationship. Mm-hmm. That can't always be easy. Um, no. Taking taking work, uh, you know, with the, with your spouse. Yeah, she um, she, of course, did the pits uh, first for NBC and then for ABC ESPN. And, um, you know, I, I, I talk to you, Kurt, and I say, Hey, you know, what do you have? What's going on? And generally you will tell me, um, you might hold one or two things back, but you know, you'll, you'll help me. Uh, my wife, Sally, she went by Sally Larvick on the air. Not a chance. If she had some <laughs> secret going, I wasn't going to pry it out of her for anything. It was just amazing. But she wasn't a race fan when we first married. In fact, she was an anchor woman in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, but she was an extraordinary reporter and interviewer. And the interviewing capabilities are what came through when she started covering racing. And at first, she wasn't necessarily that well welcomed. Uh, I remember specifically that uh, Vince Granatelli told her she couldn't come in his, in his pits. And they went back and forth. And after a couple races, uh, he finally relents because he's found out that she's Italian. Um, and, oh, now I got a pies on. Come on in the pits. And I, I think as it went on in the first year, people came to realize that she was a good interviewer and she wasn't going to throw you under the bus. And she just wanted a good story. So finally, she became accepted. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit, Paul Page, about your what you've been doing lately. Uh, obviously, uh, you're kind of a sort of an ambassador for the sport. You you you're you're popular as pe- as you walk around. I see people stopping and talking to you. So you're still storytelling. Uh, you're you're very active in the 500 Old Timers Club uh, board member there. How do you see your role kind of as as you've moved into this semi-retirement stage? Um, I'm I'm the guy who is telling you some stories that might make you more interested in racing. Uh, I have never pushed a fan aside. I mean, anytime somebody stopped me, we'd almost always have a conversation. And usually it was terminated by them saying, what well, you probably have to go on. I don't know if that was because the story sucked or because <laughs> they recognized that things, things were tight. So I've always, I've always enjoyed doing that. And I, I did, for example, last May, I did one of those a night with at the, at the Speedway Museum with Rick Mears. And it was a two hour conversation 
And it was just so much fun. We'd known each other for so long that I could lead him with some questions. And he was so open in answering on that. So I, I like to do some of that. I expect to do a little bit more of that this year. And I I make public appearances. Um, I've made one in Dayton, Ohio a couple of weeks ago, Springfield, Illinois. And I think maybe that, that circle may be my range. They might, won't let me out any further than that. But yeah, I just, I try to promote the sport. It gave me everything that I have. It's my obligation to give back. And then of course, on race day itself, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network is, has been kind enough to let me be the old guy in the back of the booth. And my job was to, before the race, make a prediction. And then during the race, if I saw something, you know, jump in on it. Um, but then at, at the 100 lap mark, I had to explain why my prediction was totally bogus. And then at the end of the race, uh, it was my job to wrap the race up and from, from my point of view. And my point of view is usually, usually race strategy. Uh, yeah. I love all, all the little games that go on. And probably my favorite of the being in the back of the booth was the 100th race where uh, I had been doing radio. I opened the the race called the first lap. And then Mark James took over the new voice of the 500 to call from then on. But toward the end of the race, I'm watching Rossi's speed. And I know he's in ninth place. And I say to the guys during a, a commercial, you need to need to keep an eye on Rossi. And they had other stuff. They, I mean, they were immersed in other things. So they, they didn't mention it on the air. So we got a little further, and I finally said, keep an eye on Rossi. Well, that kind of worked out for me, didn't it? it did. But it was, if you watch that race enough and understand the strategy, then you, you get to see things like that. And what Mark Jane said on the air that he uh, crossed the finish line at a blistering 135 miles an hour. That's right. Blistering. Yeah. blistering. And the, la- the, the other one that I'll remind you of, because it was tremendous work on your part, and you've told the story many times, but uh, you knew that Dan Weldon was in second place in 2011 oh, because yeah. it has been your training to watch for who else could win the race in case the leader didn't. And you knew that, that Dan was in that position when Hildebrand had his issue. And that was just training that you had as a broadcaster to right. be alert to that possibility. Well, especially, I mean, the, the reasoning there is, you know, that a lot of guys are maxing out on the last lap. They may be running out of fuel. They may be a, a Takuma Sato who's going to dive into first turn and, and pass no matter what. And so you have to know at least who the top five are when they stop that, start that last lap. And you have to have it in your head. And yeah. it, it changes, I mean, a, a great deal as they, as they, I mean, we had, I think, um, not in the lead, but three changes behind the lead, uh, a number of years ago. I, I think it was primarily Frankiti and I, my memory is shot, but, um, You're the, right. uh, it happens. The, yeah. And but, so you got to know that. So on that particular day, Mike King and I are even discussing that, uh, cause he and I love to talk about, the the broadcast techniques and, and skills you need to have. And so I'm focused. I see Hildebrand hit the wall. So I'm looking for second and I see Weldon and he crosses the line. And finally, Mike turns around and said, Paul, who won it? <laughs> so I got to call the finish in a kind of an abject sort of way. But, and I was also 
pretty proud of Mike because, you know, that that was a big thing to have to turn somewhere else. And he, he could have just looked at the monitor and he would have known on a scoring monitor. But he was he was nice enough to let me have that. Yeah, it was it was really good. Well, it's good to have you around. You're going to do a book signing, I think, next Tuesday. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, thank you for mentioning that. I got actually a couple coming out. Um, next, uh, Tuesday at, uh, two o'clock in the afternoon, I'll be at Daddy Jack's restaurant on the north side, uh, 9400 North Meridian. And then on the 22nd at two o'clock, uh, I'll be at, uh, Charlie Brown's on Main Street in Speedway. Uh, cause people have been bugging me. If, yeah, I can order the book, but they're not signed. So yeah. I had to at least come up with this and, uh, and I, there's another conversation time for me with each signature. Yeah, it's it's beautiful stuff. Hello, I'm Paul Page. It's race day in Indianapolis. Paul Page, it's great to catch up. Always a trusted friend and and appreciate your counsel along the way. And and a, still a great broadcaster, uh, even in a different form like Zoom or radio or whatever <laughs> we end up with. So uh hope it goes well. Hope the second. I hope there's a third and a fourth printing of the book that we're into second printing on this one. And and congratulations on that. Great. I, I, I can't thank you enough, and I appreciate what you've just said. Thank you. Okay, well, we're going to come back here and catch up on a few more things in this show. Trackside 93.5-1075, The Fan. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Hi, this is Scott McLaughlin, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. All right, we're back and, and still somewhat plausibly live from the afternoon, this portion of the program from Sebring International Raceway. Kurt's in Indianapolis. Josh is in Indianapolis. We'll both be there coming up next week, final show of the year, and then back on Tuesday, uh, January 3rd as well. I'll save the uh, the Junior Formula Car Racing update for the last segment of the show coming up in just a few minutes kurt but i'll say this it's been uh, cool for jackson to work with do you remember peter dempsey the guy yeah. who won the, the four wide finish for the freedom 100 in indy lights so he's been running with his team the last couple of days and i've known peter for a little while and that's been cool jackson actually drove for his dad cliff dempsey uh, who ran the team usa scholarship team in the uk and his uh his teammate here their their full season driver coming back from last year is Jonathan Brown, who was his teammate over in the UK. He was a full season driver. He's won the formula Ford festival before, and he's done really well in British F3 and it's a good kind of gauge to have. And then Max Esterson who uh, won, well, I think Max won the Walter Hay. He went back for a third year this year. He's doing British F3. He's actually here today. He lives in Florida in the wintertime, but he's done some uh, FIA F3 testing and was also on their team in 2020. So three of the four kids from that team were here this week. So we'll, we'll tell you how it went. I'll say this. It's been going good so far. So we'll get into more details if time permits in the next little while. But we got news, and they were nice enough to do it on, on a show day. Thursday night, Thunder is back. Did you see that? 
I did see that. SRX on Thursday nights, uh, plus maybe some other activities on the racetrack on those shows. Yeah, I don't know that it's really said what else it's going to be involved with, but just at a minimum, I, I like this idea. So SRX had been on CBS on Saturday nights with their six-race series that was sort of, I don't know, time by is the wrong way to describe it because CBS was an investor. They were uh, sharing revenue in that, and, and to be on network television is fantastic. From and, and the ratings, I think, to a lot of us seem pretty good. Uh, generally somewhere between 900,000 to maybe like a million and a half for some. And I could be off on that, but they were, they averaged over a million. But then as some people said, you know what though, you, you really need a bigger number than that on network television on Saturday night, especially the expense involved in motorsport. They can run reruns. They get the same or significantly bigger number. So I was, I was fearing whether that was going to last long-term or not. So I'm happy with this because I, I think the expectations, I don't think you have to get as big, big of a number to be on ESPN. And I think you can reach uh, a similar audience and just the nostalgia part of it. Uh, Thursday night thunder, people are going to like, and maybe they can do support series. And I don't know if they have time to show the full events on television, but I think it would be good for USAC, Midget, Silver Crown, whatever, even if it's a highlight package that, that comes in in between heats and in between the races to get them some television exposure and to just add, give people more of a reason to come to these tracks on those nights, I think that's good. I think you can get more high-profile drivers on a Thursday than you can on a Saturday. They're going to have the chance to get cup drivers. Cup, cup drivers don't have to be at the track anymore until Saturday morning. So most of the time, so that might be wide open for some of them. I think it's good on all fronts uh, from their perspective. And, and you know, you've been a big proponent as far back as I can remember about having midweek activity. And Thursday Night Thunder, you know, obviously those of us that remember that and Saturday Night Thunder, uh, Thursday night was a good night for USAC back in the early 90s. Uh, late 80s, early 90s, when ESPN was beginning to make a role. I don't know how many people really have the nostalgia aspect of it in their mind, but I think it has a branding that I'm glad somebody was eager or pushing to uh, reinvigorate. And I think you'll see a new spin on it. And I don't, I don't know what the other programming will be, but I like the idea of, of having a platform and when you have some maybe some shoulder programming as part of this, even if it's a couple minutes here and there during a downtime, maybe you got a rain delay, maybe you've got some track repairs uh, to at the SRX race to be able to showcase some other elements. Although if you're SRX, are you trying to help promote a USAC silver crown race or, you know, something else, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, Thursday night, always Thursday night thunder always had sort of a, uh, a sports center type feel to it a little bit as well, where they would showcase some other aspects of the sport. Again, I don't know how much SRX will be interested in doing that, but it, it does open the possibility for, you know, a block of motorsports coverage that we can all, you know, gravitate to. I'm not trying to get last year's producer replaced. And I, I honestly don't know who it was, but I hope there's a place at least to make a call to our friend Terry Lingle and say, Terry, would you like to be involved? You know, he was the godfather of 
Thunder on on ESPN, and I've not asked Harry if he would be involved in this and not or not. But I, I hope there's at least a call to say, hey, if you want to be involved, we got a spot for you uh, because that would add to the presence, I think, a little bit as well. Closer to us for home, I saw a new date for the BC 39 uh, is going to be a standalone event, so not with the Brickyard, not a week before or a week after the Brickyard. I like this as race fans. One more weekend of activity, September 27th to the 30th next year at the dirt track at IMS with uh, USAC and the uh, the National Midget Series. Yeah, it it actually was kind of a surprise to me. I mean, not that not that I didn't know it was coming, but I think the idea of moving it off the cup portion of the of the schedule was a surprise i kind of like that idea it comes a couple weeks after the uh imsa weekend that'll be here at indianapolis motor speedway battle on the bricks and so it and then really kind of the next week will be the indy eight hour so there'll be three race weekends at ims in a four-week span so it it does open up to uh, a kind of a different part of the year and I think we could see some real benefit to it. You know, the question is, you know, does it still interest the cup, the two or three or four cup guys that uh, it kind of depends on where they're at during that particular week. They are at Talladega uh, and it is a Sunday race, the first. So I bet, you know, the guys that are doing this that have private travel can probably be here it starts Wednesday. Is it Wednesday through Friday or Wednesday through Saturday? I think it's Wednesday through Saturday. So that might eliminate them. Um, now, maybe maybe some will say, because they had a full-on feature race on Friday night, maybe they get creative and do something on Friday night for the Chase Elliott's and the Kyle Larson's of the world. and, and make Because it, it's been its own race, so maybe that's the opportunity. Some of them do travel to race on dirt tracks on Saturday night, you know, if it's in essentially the same time zone. And that's probably, well, I'm going to say Talladega private flight is probably an hour and 20 minutes, something like that. So it's still doable, but I'm not sure it's great. I, I, some of them do it. Some of them are racing on Saturday nights before a cup race. Yeah. Kind of the, the midweek portion that, that, that I thought was attractive in the past. But again, I don't know all the details that went in behind the selection of the, of the date, but, uh, it is interesting and, and I think, uh, could be really exciting in late September. By the way, as we speak, unless something has come up in the last few minutes, I've not seen any new, uh, IndyCar deals done and, you know, kind of fell for the old okie doke of an announcement last week. It uh, ne- needed to remember that, oh, that's right. Munkos Hollinger has an Indy Lights program now. So that that announcement for the PRI show last week was not for their uh, IndyCar program. Because when I first saw that, it kind of struck me is that that surprised me. I, I had seen Ricardo Junkos a few weeks ago, and I got the impression they weren't anywhere close to announcing a second seed. So I was hoping that they made a lot of progress, but it was indeed for Indy lights. And I had forgotten, and which is now Indy next, I had forgotten that Reese gold had not been confirmed yet. I think that that's been known within circles, but that uh, is now official. And then uh, the other young driver is Mateo. Yeah. Mateo Nanini. Yes. I believe. Yeah. Is, is the second driver whose name came up last year 
as a possible connection for IndyCar, but I like to see that he's going to do a step below and, and, you know, hopefully grow within the program. So nothing else on that front that I know of. I don't know that we mentioned last week in the show with a lot of things happening that Jamie Chadwick got confirmed with uh, Andretti Autosport and Indy Light. So if we did not, that's good news to have a quality female driver one step away from IndyCar. Um, I saw some times from when they were at Sebring a few weeks ago here, and she was right in the ballpark. She was maybe like third, a tenth or two off. So good for her. Um, she's got a national television commercial. So, you know, she, she's someone that has a following and a DHL is a sponsor. So that that's someone that um, that potentially has a future. Agreed. Agreed on all. And now she's in a good car. So we'll see what she can do. It's going to be a big step up from what she's been doing. Um, This this is a significantly faster and more powerful car than what she's been doing in the W series and what she's tested before. Yeah, we'll have to see what what comes of that uh, from her program. Um, Maybe, um, but but don't assume that she's a don't judge her by what she does in the first couple of weekends. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, what else? Oh, I wanted to, to get into a couple of Twitter questions that we had. And this one was interesting. This came in today. So I'll just let you handle this one. Andrew writes at the real Wilba. Hey, if you guys have some time on the show, is it possible you could explain the backstory regarding the 1996 controversy, which led to the formation of the IRL and why we ended up with the Indy 500 and the Michigan 500 being run on the same day. Well, we got what? Two minutes. Kirk, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Andrew, that's, that's, that's going to take a little bit of time, but uh, ultimately we had uh, people uh, fighting over uh, what was important in the direction of the sport. And, and one group uh, broke from the other and we had trouble for quite a while and <laughs> we're back together. How's that some sum it up for happily ever after. And I know somewhere John Orvitz is saying, is saying, hello, I just wrote a book about that. It's called Indie split. I mentioned that last week. So John has uh, a few hundred pages on getting into that because it didn't just start in 1996. It goes back to what the mid seventies or so behind all of that. But uh, that is an interesting topic. And the other nugget that I had, well, maybe I'll save this for the next segment. And if not, we'll do it next week. So we'll see what we missed and some other things uh, to come on the way track side, 93, the fan. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Okay, final segment. Uh, as always, I've run long in previous segments, so I said I would update the uh, the driver of this program, Jackson Lee, but not a lot of time for that. I will say this. The test went really well. Really loved uh, working with Turn 3, so hopefully we can get something together to join them for the season. Uh, I would say he was about a tenth off 
of what his his more experienced teammate did. So we would consider that really good. And there was one other driver that was about the same as Jonathan Brown, maybe a half a tenth quicker. And we think that they there's no official scoring, but they they may have been a little better off than the uh, four or five others that were there. But all really really close. I wanted to sneak in one more Twitter question from Dane Cook, who said, "If both Kyles fail to secure a 500 ride this year, what are the chances that IndyCar allows them their own IMS Open Test? This would be great publicity for the 500. It keeps both drivers relevant in future 500 conversations. I would hope something like that could be worked out, and they'd be creative and not maybe stick exactly to the letter of the law and what the rules dictate. Now, all that said, if they don't find a deal for the 500 um, for this year. Unless they have something to run in 24, I don't know that they would mess with that. But, boy, I would sure encourage that because just give them a little taste of it. Maybe get some more interest out there. Uh, Start working on 24 now if 23 doesn't happen. But I I still think there's a chance. Now, finding both of them and three if you consider Jimmy as well, who I saw uh, seated and fitted in a, a stock car again for the first time in a while on social media today. But high unlikely all three are getting there probably the same for two maybe one is the best case scenario to have one of them in the 500 for next year okay out of time we'll talk to you to wrap up the year coming up next tuesday night at seven o'clock for kurt and josh i'm kevin thanks for joining us on 93.5 and 107.5 the fan